Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Matt. On today's show, Broadcast gets off the fence and backs the BBC in its charter renewal talks. The magazine's news editor, Jake Cantor, tells us why. We have all the gossip from Creative Week. And can Gary Lineker boost BT Sports ratings? Plus, there's praise for the reporter who unseated Seth Blatter and a media quiz for those who can handle the truth. This is the Media Podcast, sponsored by Audioboom. And with me today at the Hospital Club is Moz D. Moz is the founder and director of Contented Digital Media Group and was programme director at Talk Sport and before that, managing editor of Five Live as well. Big background in sport as well as radio then, Moz, and this has been quite a big week for football. A massive week for football. And indeed, in it's in my current role with our sort of digital newsroom. It was a buzz. Um, and it's a story that, that'll keep us all in business, I think, for the next eight months or so, without a shadow of a doubt. And the big question everyone will want to know is, have you seen the movie United Passions? Um, I've seen the trailer. I've read a little bit about it. It's farcical, isn't it? Uh, a budget of £13 million, most of it supplied, £12 million of the budget, supplied by FIFA. And, of course, g- can you guess who was senior script editor? <laughs> I didn't know I, that for I a fact. I kid you not, really? Mr. Sepp Blatter. Wow. So, uh, yes, looking forward to that. Also joining us is broadcast news editor Jake Cantor. Hi there, Jake. Hello, hello. I can't quite match the salubrious CV of, uh, of Mars. No, but nonetheless, <laughs> a busy week for you as well at Broadcast because you've just launched your new campaign to support the BBC throughout the Charter Renewal. You're actually saying, don't whatever you do, cut or freeze the licence fee at the Charter Renewal. That's quite a bold thing to be to be saying when many of your readers would say, actually, there are still cuts to be made. We've picked our words quite carefully and we've pulled together what we believe is quite a broad statement of support for the BBC and we are asking companies and people to put their names to that statement. What we've realised in the past couple of weeks is that there is a, a sort of reservoir of untapped latent support for the BBC. People who quietly back the BBC when they're getting on with their day-to-day work but don't publicly voice those opinions very often. And we wanted to provide a platform to bring that together in a coherent way. But then uh, there is, Mars, isn't there a difference between saying you support the BBC in terms of its programming and its output and what it does for the nation and even the licence fee in principle and saying 
oh, well, you can't make any more cuts to the budget because we cannot sacrifice any more middle management. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? You can't be pro-BBC and still anti just how much money they receive or how I, they spend I think it. it's a very clever thing for broadcast to have done, if you don't mind me saying. I think um, it's done very well. I mean, some of the names that you, you have writ large there backing the BBC are incredible, I think, in all sorts of different spheres of the industry. And I, I think it, it, it's very good for the debate. And I think they've been very clever as well because it's a qualified backing of the BBC, not an unqualified backing of the BBC. However, I don't think there's many people you would talk to in the industry or outside of it that wouldn't back the BBC, right of centre or left of centre. I think we all do. I think the good thing about the debate is it brings out and ekes out not just um, what it does for audiences, the BBC, but what it does for the industry in general. So how it does help um, independent production how it helps technology, how it helps the creative arts in general right across the United Kingdom, and you could argue the rest of the world, which of course is a good thing and I think something that we want to hold close and something that we want to, to do. I think the BBC need to be more vocal about that because, you know, in popular press, we, you know, we're talking about the Archers and the odd news bulletin. It's a far broader beast. Having said all that, having said all that, I still think there is a job of work to be done in scrutinising the BBC. I personally still believe they do too much. And I think that there's a level of money that's being spent in terms of the licence fee, uh, which is too internalised. And I think they should be commissioning more, not less. And that spend being even more potent in creating and sustaining and building a broader media industry... That isn't just about the BBC, it's about ITV commissioning, it's about Channel 4, it's about all sorts of things. If you've got a broader base of qualified, brilliant professionals, creatives, who can rely on, on, on good, sustainable commissioning, that's good for the whole media, not just the BBC. Jake, yeah, that's the danger, isn't it, that people will see unqualified support for the BBC in principle as unqualified support for the status quo? Yeah, a, a lot of what Moz has just said is on our radar. And in fact, as part of the campaign itself, you're seeing us write critical stories about the BBC, stories that they perhaps wouldn't be entirely comfortable with, talking about issues including um, the commercialisation of its in-house production arm, big plans on that front, and uh, there's a lot of disquiet in the independent production community around that. OK, let's sit on some of that stuff because it's going to come up again later, but keeping with the BBC, the director of news there, James Harding, He's hit out at politicians for complaining of bias during the election campaign. Speaking at the annual voice of the Listener and Viewer Conference, he said, What's the argument that the BBC's subtle, sophisticated left-wing message was so very subtle, so very sophisticated, that it simply passed the British people by? Moz, as Harding points out, several BBC staffers have actually gone on to work for key Conservatives. Paxman came out as a Tory after he left, or as he was leaving Newsnight. So is Harding right to say uh, that when... We keep saying this phrase, but it's true, isn't it? When the right-wing press say the BBC is biased against them and have their own problems, that they're wrong. That's not fair. It's not a literal thing, this. It's a cultural thing. Culturally, either the people that work within the BBC tend to be left of centre. In literal terms, though, that manifests itself, I think, contrary 
to what the right-wing press and, and certain Tory politicians might think. Because everyone is so conscious within the BBC that they're slightly left of centre. They work really hard at compensating against that in terms of the way that they cover things, in terms of the way that coverage manifests itself to have that balance. So I think the argument is almost, it's a, it's a, it's a cultural discussion. So the types of people are having that don't like the types of people that generally work within the BBC and the types of debates that they tend to have or the beliefs that they have. I think the thing I took away from that speech was uh, the sort of fascinating insight into the way the BBC is knocked around during election and the, the types of weapons that the politicians and their aides use. Uh, and in this year's case, it was charter renewal. The implicit suggestion being that if you don't cover our party in the way that we would like, we're going to rough you up during charter renewal negotiations. And I think that's very worrying for the BBC and uh, speaks to some of the messages in the campaign that we're running. It also seems to me that the, the politicians have got to be careful from a radio point of view, Moz, uh, ganging up on the BBC because in many ways they're the only suppliers of local radio left and it's only on truly local radio that you can actually reflect a constituency isn't it by having everyone invited in to participate if you're running well, a national station you can't do that of the the charter it's one of the central reasons why the bbc exists is the perpetuation of democratic discussion and debate that's one of the reasons why it's founded to facilitate that debate and have that discussion now there are some that might argue that in uh, you know 2015 the BBC should no longer be the sole arbiters of that debate. And at the time when they were founded, it, you know, it's clear that there wasn't that voice for the people, there wasn't that ability to create debate and garner debate within, within the populace as a whole. Times have changed. At the moment, I think you're right. I think BBC Local Radio, BBC Local Services, it was interesting this morning talking about politics. Um, David Cameron has sort of remained quiet and nodded through the 10% increase in MPs' wages. And one of the things cited, Ollie, very clever of you to bring this up, was local radio, in that why might local MPs, they're scared, they're actually running to Cameron, Tory and Labour and Light say, please don't give us this 10%, please don't do it. It's because on every local radio phone-in in the country... What will happen is, did you take the 10% pay rise? So they're being bought, they know they're going to be bought to book by local media, which is interesting, isn't it? Okay, let's move on to talk about uh, FIFA. Uh, and let's start by <coughs> heaping some praise on Andrew Jennings, the investigative reporter who's written about corruption at FIFA for my whole life, mm. um, both at the Sunday Times, plus a couple of books, and that infamous panorama documentary for the Beeb as well. Uh, the Washington Post has a great write-up of his achievements, which we urge you to read. How important do you think Andrew Jennings was to the story that's now playing out, though? I think very, with the support of the FBI, of course. Um, and I think that type of journalism has to be applauded. It reminds me of Mr Walsh, David Walsh, who, who just doggedly remained on the tail of Lance Armstrong and that story. Mm. To their discredit, other journalists shunned him because they were frightened of the wrath of Lance and that team. But doggedly, he stayed with this story. And this type of journalism of this is of the same ilk. This must be quite inspiring when things like this happen. When Nick Davies at The Guardian as well with phone hacking, for example. Those are the things that, as a journalist, you get excited about. Yeah, aren't definitely. They? I've just read Nick Davies's book, actually, Hack Attack, and it's a brilliant portrayal of how to be a proper investigative journalist. And I think it's always great when a brilliant journalist chasing a proper story is vindicated. Just to move it on a little bit, there seems to be a bit of a growing debate around 
the broadcaster's involvement in ploughing money into FIFA for rights to the World Cup and mm. uh, other competitions. And I think you'll see that debate grow. Uh, as we get closer to major football competitions, politicians are saying, is it right that licence fee money goes into FIFA coffers? That would be one to keep an eye on, I think. And do the sports broadcasters feel that pressure as well? Because, you know, they have to, they're in the process, they're trying to bid for rights, they're trying to get coverage, All they're the trying time. to get access. All the time. It's all journalism, but people have their specialities. So if I'm an investigative reporter, my agenda is very, very different to somebody who has to report on a match week in, week out. And I was at Five Live with the banning of Alan Green. He wouldn't talk to him for years and years. You know, you would, there would sometimes be a tension between, you know what you're doing here, I hope you're right, because my relation, I can no longer do my job mm. as a reporter in that essence. And sometimes there are those, there are those juxtaposition between somebody doing X job versus somebody who's doing another job. Um, but in the main, I think I think broadcast media in this country has done a rather, you know, has done a, you know a, an okay job at keeping FIFA at arm's length and, and, re- that, and reporting on them when needed. Did that come up at Talksport? Because you did do phone-ins, didn't you, around the subjects of these corruptions when they were leaked, you know, when they came out in the press first time around. People were talking about what do you think about the World well, Cup? Well, again, it's the democratic process, isn't it? I mean, so um, what we can't do is censor the population who were incensed, apoplectic at the idea of, well, Moscow in itself, we can, there's an argument against Moscow, but Qatar? Really? Let's look at the evidence. And any sensible person will tell you that, you know, staging it in 40-degree heat, I mean, people, there's a good chance that people will die. And there's no, it's, and you can't stop that type of debate, and neither would we or should we, or, or certainly at all. And we cover the World Cups, of course, with a contract with FIFA. OK, one final sport uh, subject now before we return to our usual square glasses, strokey beard, uh, shortage stuff. Now, according to reports, Gary Lineker is to be announced as a presenter on BT Sport as early as next week. Why do you think, Jake, that uh, the BBC seems to be quite relaxed about this? I think it's good for all parties. Uh, I think Gary Lineker gets to stay with the BBC and uh, present Champions League football, one of the greatest competitions in the world. And the BBC gets to keep Gary Lineker. What that really means is the BBC doesn't have to pay so much to Gary Lineker. That's what I was going to say. They get to keep him and potentially reduce his salary, which at a time when the BBC is trying to tighten its belt... Is surely a positive thing for licence fee payers. Miles, you were shaking your head throughout that. <laughs> um, I mean, everything that Jake said is true, but it's, um, I think it's a policy we're seeing quite a lot. There, there are a number of factors here. I think, I think, actually, I think it diminishes the BBC in its standing, and it's certainly a better deal for BT. Um, what he gives them is a lot of history and legitimacy, brand new in the market with a major competition, all paid for by the licence fee, by the way. And, you know, going back, maybe that's the right way we should be thinking, given my last opening statement on backing the BBC. But I think the BBC is lesser for it. Gary Lineker's mush is going to be on uh, the sides of buses, on outdoor, in print and whatever, all with BT plastered next to it. And it's a confusing thing also for viewers and, um, and listeners alike, I think. And there is this trend at the moment going on, and I just think there's a, sometimes a... There can be a lack of imagination, I think, with programmers, or a lack of bravery. Then actually we go for the same old thing, time, I'd say old thing, very good things, time and time again. Let's take my old mate, I love him dearly, Ian Wright. Superb talent, infectious enthusiasm. But he's now worked for everyone. Well, yeah, and we work with him on uh, TalkSport exclusively. He's now on um, Absolute Radio. 
He's doing BBC Five Live 606. He's also, as he's on 606, posting posts on Breathe Sport, all of it paid for media. That diminishes the talent, their value within the market, I believe, but also completely thoroughly... I think confuses the listeners and ultimately the station they're on. But Jake, does Sky it are very pertinent. Sky are very, very clear on this. If they pay for the talent and that talent's development, it is always on an exclusive deal. Sky are happy to poach people, though, aren't they? I mean, they took David Attenborough. That was a bit of a shock when seeing his face plastered on buses with the Sky logo next to it. But he's still doing stuff for the BBC. But he is, yeah. Um, you, you think I, the public I, aren't confused? I, I, I would just play devil's advocate with with Moz with one name, Claire Balding. Who, who works for Channel 4, who works with BT Sport and uh, you know, still does stuff for the BBC, I would say her stock has risen in the last few years rather than been diminished. Her stock rose off the back of the Olympics and it did absolutely rise. But again, and maybe it's just me uh, you know, being an old programmer with some old-fashioned values, is I think Claire's doing too much again. Her face is everywhere. I'm getting rather bored of her, to be honest. And I think, and I think the truth of it is, our national treasure is is getting a little overexposed. I'd like to know the Claire Balding thing again was more a marketing uh, tool for BT than a programmatic one. Have you seen the ratings for that? Since BT's done the deal with BBC Two, the ratings have gone up. Absolutely, but BBC absolutely certainly. But these these other areas don't garner huge audiences. It's about legitimacy, which brings me back to the point with Gary Lineker who will get an audience. This is another point I need to make. Sometimes in sports broadcasting, we get obsessed about who's presenting, but all the ratings and all the figures indicate that the audience, they may say they care, they actually don't. And very often you'll see the spike of that audience at 7.45, at 3 o'clock, at 5 thought The star of the show is the football match. Yeah, well, we and, saw that uh, with Adrian Childs, didn't we? You know, didn't rate at breakfast times, rating at the football. is not because of him, it's because people want to watch them. <laughs> exactly right. It doesn't matter exactly who's right. there. Exactly right. Well, you can never get bored with us here at the Media Podcast uh, because we're fortnightly and very, very brief, but we'll be back with more after this. Hello, I'm Samuel Furs. I'm a voice artist currently seeking representation and I'm bringing you today's sponsors. This episode of the Media Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace provides everything you need to build a beautiful-looking website without downloading any software. Whether it's marketing for a new show, selling your back catalogue, or hosting podcasts, Squarespace has a solution for you, and you can have the whole site ready in under an hour. Plans start at US dollars a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial with no credit card required, head to squarespace.com now. And you can get 10% off a monthly or annual plan by using the code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. OK, that's the advert. If you like what you've heard, you can get in touch with me at samuel at samuelfurs.com. Welcome back. Now, were you at Creative Week? If you weren't, don't worry. Here's what you... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Missed. When shows like Don't Tell the Bride, Gavin or Stacey, or Russell Howard move to BBC One or Two, or even to other channels like Family Guy Will in 2017 to ITV. We're glad to be part of that success. Pizza Hut, they've launched a subconscious menu. So you basically, you can go into Pizza Hut, stick on the glasses, put on your skin patches, scan your menu for two minutes, and based on what your eyes and arousal messages fall on, they will then algorithmically produce you a pizza. The big shift for me in the last couple of years is, is moving from a place of digital, doing digital things, doing, where it was novelty value, doing things because they're first. Um, whereas actually when you can start now with, with platforms with hundreds of millions of people on them, you start to getting back to a more sort of people-centred view in the world. You can do things which are insightful. You can do things which matter to people. I think the threat to quality from more salami slicing is very real, uh, and we should avoid that if we can. That was the sound of Creative Week, a three-day festival of media business stuff staged at BAFTA by Media Business Insight. Lots of speakers that will be familiar to our listeners. The BBC's director of TV, Danny Cohen. Uh, Damien Kavanagh there, who is the new controller of BBC Three. Uh, plus execs from Vice, Facebook, Spotify, Channel 4. Uh, Jake, you were there, weren't you? I was there too. Uh, highlights. Highlights. <laughs> what did we learn? I, I, I like the... the Media business stuff. That's how we. That's how we build it officially. Better title for it next year. Think on. What my highlights? I thought Danny Cohen was interesting. Uh, some of the comments he made about yeah, if the government makes a cut to the license fee, that will mean a cut to services. Uh, that's been picked up in all the national press. Sort of again goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which we probably won't need to dwell on too much more. There was a, a separate session later in the week with some people from the global TV world one of whom was a producer called Andy Harries, runs a company called Left Bank Pictures. They're making this epic drama for Netflix called The Crown. And he was talking about pitching a new show to Amazon. He described it as Downton meets Deadwood uh, and uh, sort of English aristocrats going out to the Wild West. Sounds great. I want Downton (laughs) meets The Walking Dead. That's what I want. (laughs) When is someone going to do a zombie flick set in a period cottage? Um... In terms of Damien Kavanagh, though, mm. I'm sorry, tedious regularity to return to the subject of BBC Three, but it is a big deal at the moment, isn't it, in media land? Uh, what did we learn about that? Because he did say a few things, it seemed to me, that I hadn't heard before. He said there aren't going to be any more sort of shiny floor entertainment panel shows on BBC Three. Online, they're not going to commission that kind of thing. Uh, so does, does that mean the end of those kinds of sweat the small stuff type shows that are for, you know, have I got news for you for young people, basically? Where's that going to go? That was the first thing. And the second thing he said was quite interesting. He said all the good stuff from BBC Three is going to be on BBC One and BBC Two anyway. He was very clear and adamant on that point, wasn't he? And, and that hadn't been made quite so clearly before, I didn't think. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely things starting to uh, 
become clear now about the BBC Three plans. I mean, some of this was set out in a proposal document um, to the BBC Trust earlier this year. But yes, you're right. Shiny four shows like Sweat the Small Stuff, which was uh, presented by Nick Grimshaw on BBC Three, that's going to go. Formatted factual things like Don't Tell the Bride, that's going to move to BBC One. Sun, Sex and Suspicious Parents, that's going. That will that will no longer be part of the mix. Instead, they're going to focus on comedy, drama and um, serious factual. That's what they're describing. So make me laugh, make me think and, and let me do both at the same yeah, time whilst I'm cooking and, my dinner. <laughs> and then, yes, they've, they've also made this commitment to show all the content uh, they broadcast uh, on uh, well they don't broadcast they put, they put online they're going to show on BBC One and BBC Two but there's the argument around BBC Three initially when it was all announced it felt like a fait accompli now it feels a million miles away from that I think and the trust has got some serious thinking to do about other options options that have been put forward by John Thoday and Jimmy Mulville and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if um, there's a decision somewhere between yes and no and it's it's a half halfway house where they try to establish a different kind of model for BBC Three. Can't, can't believe you're suggesting the BBC Trust would come up with a halfway house decision that sounds a million miles from the kind of thing they do. Uh, Moz, Danny Cohen actually said uh, of BBC Three that they're not closing it down, they're moving it to the same platform as Facebook and YouTube and Vice, that's what he said. I mean, that is true, isn't it? And for a younger audience, actually, who are online all the time, and indeed with smart TVs and the rest, it's not necessarily even moving off their telly anyway. Uh, are we overreacting to it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I've heard, though, Day, I've heard other arguments about maybe them, you know, going to buy it. And um, the BBC can't be, um, I think, in this instance, selling off. Um, very, otherwise, what's the BBC for? Might as well sell it all off. I think, yeah, I think we are overreacting. We mentioned it before. In backing the BBC, all right, if you're going to back the BBC, you're going to have to back some difficult decisions. Um, I'm no clairvoyant, but there's one thing I can guarantee here and now is the licence fee will not go up. All right. I, think, I think I'd take you I up think. on that bet. Yeah. So in the essence, the licence fee will not go up. Which means a real-term A real-term, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, at a time when um, there are an unprecedented amount of BBC services, something has to give. And I think um, they either had to go completely... Or there is a compromise. In the case with BBC Three, Thoday and others will argue because they make quite a lot of money out of BBC Three, personally and in in terms of business. Now, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with that. But let's look at the agenda. You know, their agenda isn't about you know bringing on new comedians and you know it's about a business opportunity and it's about a business scenario for them. Do you think the threat's real, Jake? That BBC Four would be the next one in line? That's that's kind of effectively their specific threat to the Tory Party, isn't it? <laughs> yes, because they all that's all they watch on the BBC. Maybe it will depend. I, I totally agree with Moz. I don't think there's going to be an increase in the licence fee. Uh, whether that will have an impact on BBC Four remains to be seen. Uh, I, I think one of the things the BBC says, or you know, certainly off the record and uh, behind closed doors, is that they're not entirely convinced that closing BBC4 would save enough money so there's an argument around that you could perhaps just combine it with BBC2 that's another option Uh, and you have a sort of richer spread of content on BBC2 so all of these things will um, will be discussed in in the, in the next months and uh, and weeks. I think. I don't know what you mean. I mean, just the set alone on Mark Lawson talks to must cost hundreds of pounds. Uh, let's talk about the Guardian changes there. Alan Rusbridger has gone, uh, replaced this week by Kath 
Viner after that very long process to appoint his successor. She's finally in. Janine Gibson, who ran the US office, and you'll remember she was a contender as well to be the next editor, uh, she has left The Guardian now, even though she was uh, the person in charge at the US office when they won the Pulitzer for the Snowden story. Uh, Miles, what do you think of the new personnel at The Guardian? Um, well, illustrious record. I think they've got very, very big shoes to fill. And I know lots of homage has been made to Alan. Uh, I think brave would be the watchword I would use. We were talking about journalism earlier on and backing journalism from from Snowden to Aitken to whatever. And being very brave because his commercial colleagues must have been pulling their hair out. Here's a guy who's rushing headlong, uh, a real pioneer into a digital age, taking print and taking journalism to a digital audience um, at the behest of the commerciality of the print product and now has sort of been vindicated. It's going to be interesting interesting to get Jake's view maybe on where The Guardian go from here in terms of their commerciality. It's free at the moment. Um, You know, will that ever become, you know, ever go behind a paywall like um, the other qualities who seem to be turning things around and seem to be making profits out. That's going to be interesting. I love the fact they have this vote as well. Mm. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? So Guardian, isn't it? Absolutely. So so a democratic decision. And Janine Gibson, uh, the New York Times, did a quite nice report on her, sort of outing themselves as potential suitors for her. They're opening a London office as well this year. Do you think love is in the air there for Janine? That could be on the cards, potentially. Big thing for her to leave The Guardian after all those years. Absolutely, absolutely. But I suppose in, in not getting the main job, I suppose it's, it's inevitable that somebody of that quality is going to move elsewhere. The Guardian is always an interesting point as well because its business model is very different, as we're all aware, just to qualify. It's a trust, so it's not about making profit. Um, it has it's actually award. about losing money. It's about it? losing Specifically money. Specifically about point. losing money, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's the whole point, otherwise it's not a trust. Um, it has a war chest of around about 800 million quid, which was acquired through the sale of Auto Trader. You know, so they've got money there. There has to be a business model, but they've got options, and I think that's the legacy. Um, if you look at modern startups now, let's take, um, you know, with, with massive, massive injections of cash... They make absolutely no money at all. They, what we call, it's a burn project. So I give you X amounts of hundreds of millions of quid and your one raison d'etre, Jake, is to build that audience as, as hard as you can get and hard as you can drive it. That now in the media landscape we live in has a commercial value. It has a multiple. Even though you've not made a penny, Snapchat, how much profit has it made? None. But its valuation is at 15 billion because it has an acquired audience. And The Guardian, through their strategy, now has an acquired audience. So it gives them options. They're able to think about doing things like event led scenarios, ways of extracting cash from their readership that is there because of, of the mere fact that they're there in the, so many numbers. Does it matter that it's theguardian.com? Does it matter that many of those readers are in America? Does it matter that it used to be the Manchester Guardian and now they're, you know, transatlantic globalised title? Not sure it does now. Well, whilst we're talking about crazy valuations, BuzzFeed is planning a public flotation. The new site CEO announced this week at a tech conference called Code uh, that the company's videos boast a billion views a month. Uh, Jake, BuzzFeed was valued at $850 million last summer. Can it possibly be worth that cash? I know that's a ridiculous question in the internet age because everything is overvalued, but can it possibly be worth that cash? Possibly. I mean, what you've got is a brand and cachet and readers all over the world. And that speaks to some of the things that uh, Moz was just uh, saying about The Guardian. 
I think they're saying, I mean, he, he said that uh, the IPO might be used to fund its expansion on other platforms and uh, more video content, which is interesting. Um, some people saying this week at the conference we've just staged that uh, YouTube is standing still on video. It's being a bit static, hasn't really innovated particularly, mm. and Facebook is now biting at its heels. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what BuzzFeed brings to the party. I wonder whether it might bring more commercial pressures, having an IPO, having shareholders. You know, we've seen some examples this year where it's had to delete uh, some articles uh, off the website because of complaints from advertisers. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, Miles, can a company of that size continue to keep its irreverence, do you think? Well, I think that's an interesting thing. Of course, this is, this is part of the world that I'm in now, as you quite rightly point out, making videos daily, 24 hours a day, for all sorts of publishers and all sorts of platforms. The revolutionary thing that happened to BuzzFeed is video. All right, it was a listicles thing, building an audience, one of those very clickable, bite-sized things that you say, oh, that's quite entertaining. It's one of the 13 things that happened to BuzzFeed, and you won't believe what happens next. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry. Absolutely. But video has been the real revolution for them, as it has for so many other publishers and, and whatever. And it's taken them. They're making video like it's going out of fashion and has created a revenue stream for them, um, which has allowed them and put them in a situation where they can look seriously at an IPO. In, t- in terms of what they are and their brand values and what they stand for, I think they, they have got that. They've retained that slightly. It has to maintain that. I think what they are is, and as well as, not instead of, because they're doing news now, aren't they? They're doing so, all sorts of different areas where they're not getting a fantastic rep because of the commercial press who's there. But I don't think that matters to the audience because they're not there for news. They're there still for that little bit of irreverence, that little bit of um, fun um, that helps them through their day. And that valuation, I think, if you've got a billion views a month, that valuation at 850 million, I think could be a little bit on the conservative side. I really do. Yeah, you want to put some money into uh, BuzzFeed? Maybe, but yeah. I, you know, IPOs it's all going to crash one day, though, isn't it? Isn't that the thing? That's how I feel. I feel like I'd put if I had a million dollars spare now, I'd put it in BuzzFeed, absolutely, because in three years' time, it'll be worth double that crazy amount. Yeah. At some point, surely it's got to crash because they're not generating that kind of cash. Um, well, they are. I mean, they will be through video and through the advertising, and we're going to, we're going on to talk about pre-roll. It's all about reward with advertising. It's all about reward. So when you talk about a brand standing up, it's about the maintenance of that reward. So what do you get out of BuzzFeed? Question. It's a legitimate question. What do, you what get do I personally get out of BuzzFeed? Or why, why do people... Why the do news. People? The news distilled into funny photos and headlines. Correct. Yeah. So on my long, Facebook feed. Absolutely. But as long as you've got that and you maintain that reward, that value, and you build the audience, you take it across multiple platforms, and you introduce advertising through video, all right, you are going to make money. You are just going to make money, and you are going to make lots of it. Okay, optimistic view from Moz. Jake, let's see what you make of this pre-roll story which Moz was referring to, which we will talk about now. This is Netflix. Uh, Netflix have now hinted uh, that they might be looking at pre-roll advertising. Now, they say they will not ever have a third-party ad in front of a video on Netflix, but they are experimenting right now with pre-rolls trailing their own original content. Uh, So you can be watching the latest series of the IT crowd, but then you get an advert for Orange is the New Black or whatever. House ads for House of Cards. Uh, Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Do you think that is justifiable um, in terms of they are a paid-for subscription service where people feel they're paying the premium so they don't sit through ads? Do you think it's justifiable for them to slowly be introducing ads into the equation? It would be unusual online at this stage, but, and as we've talked about, things are developing and moving forward so quickly that who can tell? Uh, one thing I would say is that, you know, Sky, big subscription business, 
plasters its content with adverts and people don't complain about that. That's true, but it wasn't, that's not how it was sold as an anti-advert place in the first place. Mm. I think it's inevitable. I think it is inevitable. And again, I don't think that will damage the audience. I think, will they get some adverse comments? You know, listen, you change the font or the colour on a site, you get some adverse comments. I think if you've got a quality product like the House of Cards or the Game of Thrones or whatever, looking at Sky, and you've got some pre-roll on it, people will tolerate that. Because the reward is there. Again, it's about the reward. I disagree. I don't think we're going to see pre-roll ads proper on Netflix. Unless they go down the Spotify route and charge you extra not to see them. Or you're talking about whole branded programs. Mm. But again, it's a blend, isn't it? So when you talk about pre-roll, people get terrified because they think that's a pre-roll on everything. Mm. We're not talking about pre-roll on everything they do. It's a blend. Is it one in five, one in six, one in seven? Is it targeted to certain groups do they go for premium product? So is it cars, banks, and, and whatever? There's all sorts of different ways of creating a, a, a blend. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't go in the route of everything we do is plastered in pre-roll. I don't think that's what they're suggesting at all. But for one or two, three premium items with premium sponsors and advertisers who would die to get to their audience, why wouldn't you do it? Okay, well, whilst we talk about premium items, in a way, every edition of the media podcast is just a giant pre-roll for the media quiz. Uh, and we finally oh, no, reached that point uh, in this week's episode. Uh, now, listen carefully, because if you miss the rules, it's always a shambles. Uh, this week, uh, the quiz is called The Whole Truth. You have to tell me, Moz and Jake, if the headline that I read to you is totally true or a little bit false. <laughs> okay? Uh, as always, it is quick fire. Just buzz in with your name when you know the answer. The loser will perform a high wire act live on ITV. The winner will take the credit. Uh, right, headline number one. Judge finds Coulson did not lie during the trial of ex-MSP Tommy Sheridan. Is that totally true or a little bit false? Um, Buzz in with your name Jake, I want to say true It is false Uh, Coulson was cleared of perjury under Scottish law uh, Which means to say they found he hadn't lied about anything relevant to the earlier trial It doesn't mean he didn't lie lie wasn't relevant to that specific trial. You didn't say they were trick questions. It's not not a trick question, it's just a question for clever people, Jake. We're just weeding out the wheat from the chaff here. Okay, here's headline number two. Share Radio is to fund its digital station using shares. Is that uh, true or a little bit false? True. Moz, Moz, name first, yes. True, says Moz. Yeah. It's a cliffhanger. Moz, you are right. It is true. Uh, the founder of Share Radio, Gavin Oldham, has released 10 million shares, and he says 90% of the money will go to funding the station. If people haven't heard of this, it is quite a bizarre idea, isn't it? It's a, is it a 24-hour internet radio station all about money? I don't, have, you heard, have you heard of this, Jake? You know, it's, it's an interesting. That was probably, probably why there was no chance <laughs> yeah. of you getting that question right. <laughs> yeah. is, is, it is quite an interesting idea, and it's, it's something that, of course, UTV are implementing with a, one of their channels will be a business channel. Yeah. Talk business, yeah. Absolutely, and this is is share channel. I, and I listen to I've listened to bits of it as you do, being sort of me uh, across things. And it's a bit dry. The idea that you can talk about money matters for that length of time and, and garner an audience, and and without an audience, of course, garner any advertising. There, which is probably why uh, they're going to the market and releasing so many shares to just try and 
prop it up. They're getting, they've got two investors, I think. There are two investors who are going to be the cornerstone investors then, then looking to crowdfund almost the rest of it. But Good yeah, press done, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit of an odd thing. You sort of understand what the well, station Jake, is. And he works at broadcast. He hadn't heard of it, so it's not <laughs> that good. <laughs> yeah, <clearly. right. laughs> okay, headline number three. I'd say it's all to play for, but obviously we're only looking at a draw here because Moz is already here. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, Jake, you know, try. Here's headline number three. The Queen was taken into hospital this week. Is that Jake? Yes. It is true. It is true. Uh, The Queen was in hospital this week, uh, but actually she wasn't ill. Uh, The tweet from a BBC staffer happened during a Category 1 obituary rehearsal, uh, and the royal checkup was just a coincidence. Do you see that story? I've done one of those rehearsals. Have you done one? I've done one. When I was at the BBC and senior management, I had to sit in a war room and get various fake calls coming through suggesting certain members of the royal family or, or you know, very important people had, had been injured and passed away. And they take you through the various stages up until the announcement that someone has passed away. It's quite interesting and nerve-wracking, but this, this was handled really badly, wasn't it, this particular piece? Inevitable, though, isn't it, in the age of social media, that if, if anyone sees a rehearsal going on for the Queen's death, <laughs> someone somewhere will assume the Queen is dead, and it's going to come out. In, in a tweet. In a tweet. Which they yeah. tried to delete then. Yeah. And, oh, it's a prank. I didn't send it. Oh, yes, I did. No, I didn't. It was all a bit odd, but there you go. I therefore declare this week's media quiz a draw. <laughs> well done, Jake. You managed to pip in I, with the draw yeah. at the last moment. I haven't achieved anything, really, have I? Uh, pretty exciting. <laughs> Right, uh, we need to go off and work out our strategy for what happens if the Queen dies whilst we're recording an episode of the Media Podcast. I assume Steve Hewlett will come on and take over and it'll all uh, default to the mainframe. That is it for today. My thanks to Jake Cantor and to Moz D. Uh, You can find all of our previous instalments and get new ones downloaded automatically straight to your phone. Just head to themediapodcast.com. Today's show is dedicated to Ashley Bramwell, a multimedia middle-aged male, uh, and to Patrick Hargood, who teaches media at Felpham Community College, a comprehensive school on the Sussex coast. If you would like a dedication on the media podcast like Ashley and Patrick, lucky men, if you would like to support our podcast and get a load of praise from me, go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Uh, And thank you very much if you do do that. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer this week, Matt Hill. The media podcast is a PPM production. And until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.